Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come to you this morning humbly and thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Father, we pray that the words that I say are not mine but yours, Lord God, and that the scripture speaks and that I get out of the way, Lord God. We just pray, Lord God, that your word is effective and we pray that it does not return void, but it accomplishes all for what you set out for to do. Amen. As, uh, as Julian said, we, uh, Jesus is, and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi. Now that area um, is a uh, is a is a strange area. It is it is um, it is a center of worship, but not of Yahweh. It was uh, the center of worship of many false gods. It was the center of worship of Baal, of the Greek god Pan, and now Caesar. And it is in this place where there are so many false gods and men who are worshipped as gods that Jesus asked, "Who do you say the Son of Man is?" Jesus is not just another man or another prophet. He's not just another empty deity. We have in the midst of all these false gods that are worshipped, the, the one true God. And this was, not, this was a sparsely populated area. This was not an area, a crowded city. This was not a, a major capital. This was not a big city full of massive crowds where you would expect the Christ to minister, especially where you would expect such a pivotal moment in the lives of, uh, of Peter and of the disciples. But like so many other times, we, uh, God chooses humble circumstances to reveal such a great truth. Jesus was born in a humble town. He was born in a humble manger, in humble circumstances, with no pomp or show. So this moment, to the, the setting within the moment, speaks to the significance of it. And what a significant revelation it is. Let's look at verse 16 and verse 17 again. Jesus, um, Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, or you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. The revelation was was given to Peter must be the greatest revelation that can ever be received. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. This is at the centre of our faith, at the centre of world history. This revelation has shaped nations, has sent countless missionaries to distant land, has has shaped all cities of all sizes and has sent many saints to their glorious end as they took their stand upon this revelation and died the martyr's death. This is a true statement and the most important statement of any truth in any time in history, especially ours. But this is not a revelation that we, or Peter for that matter, obtains ourselves. What does Jesus say in verse 17? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The revelation that Jesus is the Christ is not revealed by man. This only comes from God. And just like Peter, this revelation only comes when God reveals that to us as well. We can make all the effort and never convince someone to turn to Christ unless God's opened their heart. Has anyone had that experience? Over the years, I've spoken to my parents about my faith. Um, I, uh, um, un- unfortunately, at this stage, only apart from my one grandparent, 
uh, only me and Becca saved than our families and our children. Um, so, uh, so if it was up to me, all of my family would be saved, and, and one day we pray that they will. But, uh, but no matter how much effort I've made or how many times I've told mum she's going to hell, she, uh, um, she <laughs> in a, such a subtle and lovely, loving way, um, <laughs> my mum, was, with great patience, persevered with me as a young Christian, preaching had her any time I could. My sister and my family thinking it was just a phase. Um, when I was a young Christian working at Coles on the checkouts, when they still did that for you, you didn't have to do that yourself back then. Um, uh, scanning a customer's groceries, they would say, how was your day? And they'll tell me they're going through a hard time. And I'll say, you know, can I pray for you? You know, Jesus loves you. I'll draw it. I mean, I'll probably be fired now. But um, back in the 90s, uh, you know, it was just a nod on a wave. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I was... Um, if it, was up to, if it was dependent on me and my persistence, my energy, my whole family would be saved. But until God softens their heart, until God softens somebody's heart, until God reveals that to them, then they will continue to think that I'm just going through a 28-year phase. This is the work of God. It always has been God's work. Salvation is the full work of God and only God. John 6.44 tells us that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 comforts us with this reminder that it is through grace that you are saved, through faith, not of yourselves, but it is a gift from God, lest any man boast. Our salvation is God's gift from start to finish. There is no merit in the earning or the asking. October just passed was Reformation Month, um, and on October the, the, uh, the 31st was, the, was what we call Re Reformation Day, and it was on that day that 505 years ago that Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church. The great revelation he had and others built upon was that not Christ, it wasn't Christ plus works, it wasn't faith plus indulgences, but it was we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And this is a comfort, not because... Um, because I did not, on any knowledge or any of my doing, obtain that revelation. This is not dependent on my work or on my merit. And my heart should always be grateful for that thought. Because as John 6.44 says, he will raise us up on the last day. Jesus opens this dialogue by asking what others say about him. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. Um, there are so many different opinions about who Jesus is, isn't there? There's a social justice Jesus, the all accepting all encompassing Jesus. There's many different Jesuses that people have. But, uh, but without the revelation from God, we are left with what we can piece together with what we see and hear. And man's opinion, well, it always changes with the times, doesn't it? It always changes. The Jesus today is not the Jesus um, that it was 20 years ago or 1,000 years ago. According to man's opinion, it always changes. And this is how God builds his church. What does missions look like? If, the, if, if this is how, on the revelation that he is the Christ, then what does mission look like? What do our church services look like? Are our church services focused on Christ, on the gospel? We, churches can do good stuff, but it's not about that. His church is not built on doing good stuff. It's not about, it always has to point to Christ and the good news of the gospel. It must be at the centre. Christ must be at the centre. This means 
you know, when we do missions, you know, our entry to the country must, it could well be teaching or building a building or serving the poor, but it cannot be the main purpose. Our primary calling is the gospel and to preach the gospel of Christ. He does not build his church on lights and sound or on events and programs. To summarise Paul Washer, if we use carnal or worldly means to attract people, we are going to attract worldly people and that we are going to have to keep using greater worldly means to keep them in the church. We've got to preach Christ and him crucified. And as we preach and share the gospel, God will bring his people in, not us. We don't attract people through our awesome services and all that. We, we may just, we attract crowds maybe, but we don't, we don't bring people to Christ. Only God does that through that revelation. And as we focus on building his church, Christ gives us the keys to the kingdom. He gave the, king, the keys of the kingdom to Peter and said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. On face value, this is a, a very odd thing to say, isn't it? You know, what does it mean? I tell you, there's been very, very many interpretations of, of what binding and loosing means. But we need to look at this in the context of the passage and we need to allow scripture to interpret scripture. A few chapters later, we see in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, Jesus is telling his disciples how to deal with someone who sins against you, that if a person does not listen to you or others or the church, then let him be as an unbeliever. And the parallel verse here is given in verse 18 of Matthew 18, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound and loosed in heaven. So we see within the context of building the church, Peter has shown how to manage the church through church discipline. Now, many of you may know or may, may or not know uh, our Pentecostal roots. Uh, we were taught uh, back in the day that if we bound things in heaven, we bound spiritual things or loose spiritual things, then they would be done in heaven. We would pray prayers like, I, I bind you sickness or I, I loose blessing over your life or we bind you Satan. I think the issue there is we bound Satan so many times, I'm wondering who loosed this guy, got let this guy out, the amount of times that we bound him. But um, anyway, <laughs> someone keeps letting the guy out. Um, <laughs> But based on the context of scripture, it does not imply that Peter was commanded to do that. It was, it, it was more, he, God, Christ is more interested in building his church, and so should we. This is the first mention of the church. Here in, inverse, uh, in chapter 18, verse 17, are the first two uses and the only uses of the word in the gospel. And this is central. It is, after all, what Christ told Peter that he would be building. Jesus wasn't about building individual ministries building tele-evangelists or building massive, uh, massive ministries. He was building the church on the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the chief cornerstone. And this was the plan, and this is, still, is, still is the plan. The church is where we come to have community, a fellowship of believers focused on Christ. The church is God's covenant people who own the Lord Jesus as their Christ and Saviour. There are many different pockets of believers today who disconnected from the church. I'm sure you've heard people say, probably said it ourselves at some time, that we can do church by myself in our home. You know, I'll just listen to sermons. I'll just go online, listen to sermons. I'll hang out with a couple of other believers and we can talk about Jesus. But that's not what church is about. You know, some people might say, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. It's full of people who say one thing and do another thing. Um, you know, I just want it to be my, me and my four and no more. But when it comes in these cases, home church may, only, may be the only option sometimes. Sometimes in China and other persecuted countries, there may be no other option but to, but to have church with a small group of people. 
and that's okay in that context. But when there is, they're meeting together is the command of God, and it's how God builds his, his church. If we come back to what Jesus is doing, what he is building in his church, how does home church fit within the community of believers that Jesus is building? No church is perfect, and there are, and there are right... There are, there are so many hypocrites in church. I'm one of them. We all sin and we all, we all make mistakes, um, other than my wife. Um, the, <laughs> I shouldn't go off the notes, honey. <laughs> but as a community of believers, we are not trying to be perfect, are we? We only worship he who is. And I hope that we have all have experienced a church here that holds us, not just holds us sound doctrine, but is a community of believers who love each other. We, we, you know, we fail sometimes, but hopefully our church focuses on the gospel, but also lives the gospel through loving each other and loving the church. We all fail. We cannot please everyone, but we strive together. We are all different members of his body, and we all have such an important role to play. Now, it's interesting that Jesus told them not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. This seems odd and would be to them. But remember, this was prior to the crucifixion, prior to his death and resurrection. The crowds wanted to crown him for his miracles. They, they had a different idea of who the Messiah was, just like Peter did. You know, Peter's saying, oh, you know, let's, you know, let's, uh, let's crown you now. Let's, uh, the crowds, when they threw palm trees, palm leaves at him as an entrance in Jerusalem, they wanted to crown the, the, the political Messiah. They wanted to crown the king. But that wasn't why Jesus was here. He did not want the crowds to come for that reason. It's easier to follow the crowd, isn't it? It's easier to follow the miracle or, the, or, the, or, or when good times are good, it's easier to follow. We have churches filled with people who are attracted to the miracles, to the signs, to the things that many churches create to be attractive. This does not mean that they are saved. They have to have the revelation of the Christ. Like today, the crowd follows the miracles not the one who the miracles testify of. Let us strive not to be distracted by these things. Let us focus on Christ. Although, the, although those things are not bad in itself, these things can detract us from the gospel. Now, let's have a look at verses 21 and 23 again. What comes now? After the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, what did Jesus say? Let's look at verse 21 and 23. The reason, he, the reason he came is in that next passage. From the time Jesus begins to explain that he must suffer, die, and raise three days later. So I've got a bit of a light situation here, so I'm going to move back a bit more. You don't put it in a plastic folder and expect to read it. <laughs> it's a lesson learned for next time, guys, if there is a next time. Um, <laughs> because he is the Christ, he must suffer, die, and raise. That is the purpose. Jesus, did not have, Jesus could not have told them about his purpose without the revelation because this makes no sense without the Christ. Jesus dying and rising again, Jesus going to the, the cross, makes no sense if he's just a man, if he's just a political leader, if he's just another, a, another warmonger trying to overthrow Rome. He needs to be the Christ for that to make sense. Jesus goes from the revelation of who he is to unpacking what he must do. This is what will happen and because of this because of who he is this must happen as outlined in the law of the prophets paul says this in uh, in 1 corinthians 15 3 to 4 that jesus died was buried and raised from the dead according to the scriptures 
The scriptures do confirm that he will perform and he did perform miracles, but all of scripture demonstrates to us that he came to die. This is the centre of why he came. Then we have one of the greatest flip-flops of all time here, don't we? Can you imagine Peter in all of this? Just had this massive revelation that, he is, that this is the Christ, this is the prophesied one, the Messiah, the one that, that uh, his people have been waiting for for, for so, many, so many years, hundreds of years. And then, you know, Jesus says, yes, to Peter, you know, you, you get a name change. You're no longer Simon, you're Peter or Petra, and on this rock of revelation I will build my church. But then Peter hears what Jesus must do. This can't be. We're sitting here with the Messiah. Let's go. Let's march to Rome. Let's march to Jerusalem. Let's do this. Let's take over. This is, you are the Messiah. This cannot be. We're setting up a kingdom. We're overthrowing a government. Peter did not understand. He understood he was the Christ, but not what the Christ must do. To the point of absolute arrogance, Peter rebukes Jesus. No, Jesus. No, 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 no. Now, this is what's going to happen. This is how, what you're going to do, Jesus. This is what we're going to do with it. Now, Christ offers them one of those loving rebukes that we should, we sure we could all say sometimes, get behind me, Satan. Peter had gone from the kingdom of this world of Satan on his mind and not the kingdom of God. Peter is thinking of earthly kingdom, not a heavenly one, a temporary kingdom versus an eternal one. Remember what Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness, setting up that earthly kingdom. That temptation that, that Satan offered is the same that Peter offered Jesus then. The wrestle with, eter- with earthly temporal things and earthly things and eternal things is our constant struggle. Our flesh is wired to seek temporal blessings over eternal, long-lasting fruit. Paul encourages us in the epistle to set our minds and our hearts on things above, not on things of the earth. This is where our affection should lay, on heavenly things. This is where our minds should be occupied with knowing Christ and making Christ known. Jesus makes it clear that Christ must die and rise again, and anyone who thinks otherwise hasn't grasped what God is doing in the world. Jesus didn't come to be an example of love, and of, or, you know, even though he was an example of pure, true love. But he didn't come to be a love example. He didn't come to serve mankind, although he served mankind with that greatest thing on the cross. He came to die. This is the gospel. This is what it's all about. His whole life, his whole, the whole scripture of the Old Testament, it's pointed to the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ. So now what, we, what do we do now in the light of all of this? This is great news, though. This is nothing compares to Christ. Let's have a look at verse 24 onwards. So we, we examine in the light of Christ that if we want to be his disciples, must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. What does it look like? What does suffering look like? What does taking up our cross look like in today's light? Peter had the kingdom wrong. He wanted glory now, suffering never. It wasn't like after pay, but sort of never pay. You know, let's, uh, let's get it all now and pay later. Gets us into some trouble sometimes. Taking up that cross looks different for all of us. It, it may look like losing friends. It may look like losing family. It may look like being mocked. It may look like being embarrassed when we say grace in a public place, when we say no to that drink, when we say no to that movie. Sometimes that may be embarrassing. 
may, we may need to run away from that temptation. We may need to step away from that gossip. It's so tempting sometimes, but taking up that cross, denying ourselves, it's different for all of us, but it's all about putting Christ first in our life. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must deny yourself. In most cases, it doesn't mean that we sell all our belongings, hit the road in a tunic. Um, I don't have a tunic anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> we all have those, what are they called? Not moo-moos. Um, the um, oodies. We all, no, hit the road in an oodie. Um, <laughs> never shave or shower. You know, that's the dream. But the thing of the world must not consume us. They must, be our fir- they must not be our first love. Worldly things. We all have to have those things. We all have to live in a house. We all have to pay rent or mortgage. We all have to eat food. But they cannot be our first love. They cannot consume us. Jesus is telling his disciples that through, that through the whole ways of time, he's telling us as well, that it doesn't even compare. The life dedicated to Christ is the only life worth living. We must love God's church. We must love people. We all don't have to be monks. We don't separate ourselves. We don't single ourselves out and stick ourselves in a closet somewhere. Loving God is about loving people and loving his church. It's about that self-sacrifice. If we invest in life now, we will give up life in the kingdom. In view of eternity, this life is short. James 4.4 tells us that life is just a vapour. I think in Isaiah it says that uh, we're like grasses of the field. We wither and die. It's so quick. Life is fleeting. So how does this look practically to us? For unchurched people, this life is all they have, isn't it? They are living their best life now. When I told um, my my family and my parents that potentially my option is to give up a well-paid government job and to be poor for the rest of my life, um, I don't think they they didn't really have a big smile on their face. (laughs) We just built our house. We just moved into state. Mum, this was my mum's dream. My dad, when he was still alive, was every time I saw him, oh, you, you got a mortgage yet, son? You got a house yet, son? That was their dream. Establishing their, establishing a house. You got to have security. You got to have this. You got to have that. You know that that's uh, so. When I told my parents uh, that uh, that this is a potential plan is to is to do this, they uh, they didn't hold much joy for that. But uh, because living their best life now is all that they have. Got to live your best life now. Where have we heard that before? So they live for the next accomplishment. People live and forever compare themselves to others. What does what does Susie have next door? What does Bruce have down the road? You know, I, you know, I've just got to achieve that next thing. I've just got to get to that next goal. But our best life is to come. Our best life is the next life. We still have life. We can still enjoy life. We enjoy life all the time, don't we? We can still have those joys. We're not meant to be miserable. Debbie Downers, who, uh, you know, who hate life, we can still enjoy life for its fruits and we see and we enjoy life better with this focus, with this change. We, can be, we, we, are, we have to be content with what we have because this does not bring us fulfilment. How can it? When compared to Christ, how can this life bring fulfilment? I don't know if you know these, uh, these friends who have left church, they're just not the happiest of souls sometimes, are they? Because they've tasted life. They've tasted what is good life. And now they're trying to live life without that, and they cannot. Suffering is part of Christianity. Paul exhorts us in Romans 5 and says, We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces character, perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. 
And we have hope, church. We have hope because Christ is returning. Our salvation is secure and he, and he will complete his good work within us. He will complete that salvation within us. He will bring that about. He will bring that out. It's secure because it is not of ourselves, because we didn't do it on our own accomplishment. He did it. It's a full work of God from start to finish. What security is that? What awesome, awesome security that I can't fall out of grace because I couldn't fall into grace because of what a wretched person I am. Everything this life offers is fleeting because Christ is returning. We have a promise, a hope. That, as we've said before in John 6:44, that he will raise us up on the last day. And verse 27 here tells us that he will be coming back in glory. There is no comparison. What benefit to have the whole world for the Son of Man is returning. So Jesus in the Christ, is the Christ, and because he is the Christ, he must suffer and die and rise. Peter can now understand why he must suffer now, because he is returning to set up an eternal kingdom, not a temporal earthly one, not a one that's going to last for a generation or half a generation. We've all had glory days. We've all had days where it all seems good, but there's seasons. Seasons come up and down. We have seasons that are bad. We have seasons that are good. That's what life is. Life goes up and down. You know, we've had, we have beautiful children and we have children, some, you know, with autism. We have children with special needs. We, have, we all have different... We have children who are sometimes have challenging circumstances. But, uh, but these are temporal things. These are seasons in our life. We have seasons where everything goes well. We're, we're, we're blessing where, my, where she said yes to me, you know, in 1999. You know, or I took her out and I said, honey... Can't do much better than this. <laughs> and she realised, yeah, well, that's better than, better than. <laughs> but it, but she she held on to the hope that it's only a season. <laughs> the great hope we have, church, is that he is returning. We focus on the things of heaven because he is returning. This is not all there is. This is not the end. What I accumulate now is not the end. Hallelujah. Suffering now seems crazy, but not crazy, because he is the Christ and he will come in glory. So what is our response to this but to take up our cross? 2 Corinthians 5 provides us with a great exposition of what the temporal versus the eternal looks like. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, and I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore also we have this ambition, whether we're at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And verse 15 says, He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And verse 18 gives us that commission. Now all of these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So while we are here in this temporal world, we have our lives to live. We don't shy away from our everyday responsibilities. We, we've got to be a loving parent. We've got to be a good worker. We've got to be a loving husband or a wife. We've got to be a model employee. And these things are commanded to us in Scripture, aren't they? We have to live our everyday lives. But within these everyday duties, we have an eternal focus. To always be ready with an answer for the hope that is in us. We live for Christ and in both word and deed, we are his ambassadors with that ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray.
Father, thank you. Thank you that we have that eternal focus on mine. Thank you that this temporary life will pass, that these troubles will fade when we meet you in glory. But we thank you that while we are here, we have that eternal purpose. So no matter what we are going through, no matter what we are suffering with, no matter what times we have, good or bad, we have your eternal focus, and that is to live for you, to take up our cross and to follow you. Help us as we go from this place, Lord God, to have that eternal focus. For that is all that we need. Amen.